Well, uh, just a couple of notes, and then we'll finish up this morning with Grant. I'm really excited. I've, I've looked ahead and seen what Grant is doing. I'm very excited about this. Um, just as a reminder, uh, there are some people who helped make all of this happen, and so you might extend your thanks to them. Uh, Tony Congdon kind of oversaw everything, and then uh, Jackie has made our snacks and made the kitchen. She used the warmth of the of the kitchen for us, and then everyone who helped in the uh, with watching the kids, which would be ironic if we didn't have anybody to watch the kids while we did this. So um, anyway, thank you to everybody, and for, for Grant, who I know spent lots of extra time outside of normal work hours uh, preparing for this. And just pray for uh, future summer equipping conferences. This is something we really have on our heart to do um, for the community, and it'll take a number of years for it to catch on and that sort of thing. Just pray for it, and and um, we'll see what the Lord does. And then last, before uh, we have Grant come on up and finish us off for the morning, we have Proverbs for Parenting. And uh, so we did one more drawing. The secret name is, which I haven't looked at yet, somebody who desperately needs help, Nate and Ann Carr. Come on up. <laughs> of course, they filled out like 20 cards. But, uh, so, Grant, I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, finish out this morning. Lord, oh, how gracious you are. Uh, what a dismal world this would be without children. In fact, in Scripture, the absence of children is considered, uh, the absence of children in a city is a curse from God. And we thank you for our children. We thank you that some here with grandchildren. We praise you for them, Lord. They're, they are just amazing, delightful little creatures, and, and we just are, are enamored with them, and yet we have a responsibility to them. Thank you for the parents who are here. We pray for those who uh, were not able to be here, who might be able to listen later, Lord, that you would impact their hearts. Be with Grant now as he brings us your word, as he brings the, the uh, fruit of his experience of his time raising children. Might we all learn and grow and continue to... Seek Christ-likeness by being the parents that you want us to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I thought we'd start off with a, a brief recap, recap of last night. A couple of you weren't here, and I thought it would be a helpful way to uh, put us back into the scene of where we were. Again, I was taking some principles from Shepherding a Child's Heart uh, from Ted Tripp that uh, had influenced us. That's uh, a part of what we're doing here. And then uh, I'm also going to be using a bunch of other things that uh, have come up that Kathy and I have learned. We're interspersing just a bunch of stuff in here and and, uh, thankful for those who have gone on ahead of us. First reading from uh, Luke 6, verse 43 and 45. We kind of camped on this verse a little bit. And uh, we said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And that verse really led us into our first uh, slide here, which was the overflow of the heart. It's from the overflow of the heart is what we say and what we do. Your mind, your affections, your will, all of that is what comes out in what we say or do, good or bad. All the good things that you have learned yourself or your children have learned, that's going to spill out into what you say and what you do. 
Then we briefly went through an illustration. We kind of talked about an apple tree. We tried to make ourselves look good or make our kids look good. We put these little apples all over the tree there. And uh, instead of going and systemically trying to grow the base of it so it's going to grow from within, we often will just take and buy apples and tie them on the tree in different spots to make it look good. But they're not systemic. It's going to rot eventually. So we, we kind of looked at that. From here, we see that behavior is t- interpreted with reference to the heart. Behavior is interpreted with reference to the heart. So the heart is really the main foundation of this that we, we have to work through. Mark seven fourteen to 23 demonstrates that it comes from inside the heart, what makes a man unclean. And let me read that, Mark seven fourteen to 23. It says, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? But it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods." And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a man. Let me me stop and take that verse and just kind of tweak uh, one word, or just a few words in the thing, and, and put in a different, different reference here. It says, what, and he said to them, What comes out of a child that defiles a child? From within, out of the heart of a child, produces evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness. Out of a child comes an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a child. So think of your children sometimes in those terms. Ungodly behavior begins with an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude in the heart that is then reflected in the behavior. So ungodly behavior or attitudes produce a certain outcome. We know there are certain outcomes that are, you have. So if you have ungodly behavior, it's going to produce ungodly results, isn't it? That's what's in the heart. We also see that godly behavior produces other outcomes in behavior. It will produce godly results. You're going to get godly behavior is going to produce godly results. You cannot ignore the issues of the heart as they relate to your child's behavior. You just you can't ignore those things. As Steve said just uh, earlier this morning, we have to look at those things. Behavior reveals what is in that heart. The attitudes and actions are reflected in the behavior. What we see and what we hear, that's the behavior that we don't like. It irritates us. When our kids act in certain ways, it, it gets on us because we know that's, that's not good. Take, for example, our kids fighting. You, I'm sure you've never seen this in your own home. So maybe in your neighbor's home, you've heard that they've, they've had some fighting going on. In fact, this can even happen with only one of our kids and a neighbor. So you don't even have to have two kids for this to happen. They could be fighting over anything. It could be the remote control for the TV. It could be the last scoop of ice cream. There's fighting that's going to happen. So what you have is a fighting behavior. Behavior, where is it coming from? Well, both children are expressing a love of self. They're unwilling to share. So that ungodly behavior in their heart comes out in fighting. That's what we, what we see there. When we hear the fighting, we say, stop it. Don't do it. 
get, 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 get over with it. Start sharing. We focus on the behavior. Well, the behavior is what we see. That's the irritating part, and we just want to change that part of it. We try to address that really in a box, then, of the behavior. So we, we tr- sometimes just keep it in there. We want to see, we see the fighting. We want to see the sharing. And uh, the temptation is to just deal with the behavior. We want to see it turn from fighting over to, behave, over to sharing, what you see there. Well, we have different attempts and ways to address this behavior to, to cause change, but that's only be superficial in nature, and it won't last if we just take and only try and deal with that behavior. God is concerned not only with what we do or what our kids do, but really how we do it. What's the attitude behind it? And there's some negative ways that we, uh, we address behavior. We, we try to make some changes here. Who had it first? They're fighting over something. Okay, who had this first? Fighting over a toy. And uh, we try to solve the problem based upon initial ownership. Oh, you had it first? Okay, here, give it back to you. Where in the Bible does it say that the child who had it first gets to keep it and has no other responsibilities? There really isn't a place that it says that. Or we use manipulative threats. If you guys keep fighting over these toys, I'm going to pack them all up and ship them off to Swaziland. I'm sure the kids over there would enjoy these toys, and you're not going to have many more. Quit fighting over these things. We're manipulating them with a threat of loss because we're trying to get the behavior just to change. All we want to see is the behavior to change there. Another one we would use is guilt or emotional appeal. You might say, you know what? Daddy is really not happy. He goes off to work, and if you notice, his shoulders are slumped. He looks so sad because he knows every day when he's at work, his kids are at home, and they're just fighting all day long, and it makes him so sad. In fact, he even he's lost the, he didn't get his last promotion because his, he was so sad about his kids. And we just build this story, and you know, we're going to have to sell the house probably all because you kids are fighting. It may work the first couple times, but eventually they're going to figure that out. What are we doing? We're trying to manipulate them. We're trying to cause a guilt or an emotional appeal to get them to change. You can make a compelling story. might cry a few times, but that's not going to change their hearts. We use shame. It makes me so sad when you do that. We're just shaming them into it because it it puts it on me. You're hurting me. We'll use bribery and and, uh, prizes. Um, if you share, you're going to get a prize. So we're going. if I catch you sharing, I catch you doing good things, I've got a money jar here, and we're going to put money in that jar every time I catch you sharing. And when we get enough here, we're going to go to Disneyland. Isn't that going to be fun? We're going to have a lot of time, but, but we want to see your attitude, and your, rather your, uh, your behavior change, because we're going to put it right here. Be nice, and you get money. That's really what it's, what it's telling them. Or we'll make a contract with them. And this is common with teens. There's a lot of Christian books written that talk about this. Well, you make a contract with your kid, and here's the rules. And if you disobey this rule, here's what you get, and here's the responses, and this is what the outcome will be. It's very cut and dry. There's a book called Toe-to-Toe with Your Teen. I read this thing, and and Kathy will tell you, I I was just steaming looking at some of the concepts in here. It said, find out what hurts them the most, and then take that away from them. Whatever it is, find out where it's going to hurt them the most, and that's what you withhold from them. You're going to be using a, a, a bribery or a prize for them. In this particular one kid, it was his hair gel, a, a, a boy's hair gel. And if they could just withhold his, hey, we solved it. We've got a great kid now. We just withheld his hair gel every time he gives us problems. Missed something there. Another one is a fear of abandonment or a, uh, um, to control their behavior. Well, you know what? If you're bad here, you keep this up. I'm just going to leave you in the park here, and I'm not going not to worry about you. I'm just going to leave you. That's not going to help their heart. That's, that's, that's child abuse. Or behavior modification, where you reward their good behavior, and you do punishment for bad. Um, 
that's the you're in the grocery store and you guys have all heard this you've never tried it yourself i'm sure but uh, you're in the grocery store if you just please be good at the at the checkout line we're going to get you a candy bar all of these above things may be temporarily effective behavior changes, but the heart is going to be left unchanged. And that's what we want to get. We want to change the heart, not just the behavior. By practicing these negative patterns ab uh, above, uh, the parents are going to both display and encourage hypocrisy. So if you don't you go to your ungodly behavior there, you don't deal with that. You just deal within the box of the behavior. They're doing it without the right heart, and that's what's called hypocrisy. If you try and change behavior without dealing with the heart issues, that's what you end up with. They're going to have the same deep issues in their heart, and the positive outward behavior is just going to be a simply a mask of what their heart is doing. These ways of, of negatively affecting them is not going to lead our children to the desire and a knowledge to serve God, and that's what we're really after. So we have to understand the attitudes of the heart, what's inside there. You look for the heart attitude behind the negative behavior. That's what we really need to deal with. What is it that's driving this? Why are they acting this way? What needs to change? The, the Bible defines many categories of wrong behavior or attitudes of the heart. There's love of self. I'm doing this because I love myself and I don't want to have myself have my rights or, or my desires taken away from me. Envy, you have it, I don't have it, therefore I, I want it. That is a bad attitude of the heart, and we do this as adults as well. Self-preservation, we'll, we'll try to do that. We'll preserve what we have and preserve our dignity rather than really thinking of others first. Fear of man, I mean, I'm just afraid what other people will say about this. And I know I fall into that one real easy, where even as an adult, we do things because we fear what man is going to be doing or what the results will be, and we're not trusting God in it, rather than doing what God really says we should. Idolatry of the heart, and we all put idols in our hearts. Or rebellion. There's rebellion in a, in a child of, child's heart. You have to get that out of them. Fear, they're just fearing something, or anxiety. These are all negative behaviors that are heart issues that are driving the actions that are behind what's, what's occurring here. In the case of fighting, we looked at earlier, the obvious thing to deal with, and possibly both parties, is love of self. There's a love of self that's driving this attitude uh, and action of fighting on both of their parts. If you understand that behavior follows the heart, you're going to be able to help your child understand the issues of their heart. You're going to see, oh, this is what's going on. And then you look at really what you're looking for, and that is a love of others. A love of others is what we're after. So how do you get that love of others in there? If you focus just on their behavior, it's going to miss opportunity really to lead them to the cross. That's what we're after. Lasting change will only take place as a child understands their need for God's grace to change them. And that's redemption. You know, that's repentance. That's faith in Christ. That's where we ultimately want to, to drive them. There's only one way to change the heart, and that is through a personal relationship with Christ. That's the only hope we have. And you can see, only way to change that behavior, you take them through the cross, now you get the heart attitude. So you look at behavior, drive that up to the attitude or action that's behind it, take that through the cross, Christ can change that, and then you've got your godly attitude is really what we're after. We can repent, we can cause... We will change the heart at that place. We need to see the ugliness of our sin as God sees it. I'm thinking we, because again, Deuteronomy 6, it has to first start in our hearts, and then we teach it diligently to our kids. This is what we want our kids to do. We need a heart change. 
Lasting change is getting the child to see the abundance of their heart. And that's what we're after. Get them to see it, that they will be intrinsically, personally motivated. They'll have enough knowledge in their heart that they will see, ah, this offends God. I need to take this to the cross. That's the goal that we want them to see in life. Christ uses the example of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. That's what happens. We just clean the outside, it looks good, but we haven't dealt with the heart. This should give us hope. Through the grace of God and the mercy of Christ, we can become people who truly love from the heart. If we're only dealing with this lower box, addressing the behavior, then I'm going to forget to go to the cross. The cross, redemption, the grace of God just doesn't fit in, does it? Well, you know, just dealing with how do you get from putting money in a money jar every time they've done something right now or, or they've done something wrong to, by the way, Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. There's not a connection there. It's like trying to play a cassette tape in an MP3 player. Just the two are, it doesn't match. It doesn't work. You can't. But more importantly, and this is something I really, I really appreciate, appreciate about this way that Ted Tripp said this, it's this allows you to operate at the same level, recognizing that you too are a sinner with your children. Rather than this condescending tone, son, you did that wrong, how dare you do that, we need to fix this, you're so rebellious, I don't understand how you would do this, no. As if we wouldn't participate in selfishness ourselves in our hearts. Instead, we can say, you know, son, I too struggle with this. You know what? I have a problem with loving self, loving myself, or I have a problem with fear or anxiety or putting idols in my heart. I, I need a savior too. We now can walk with them because it's in our heart. And we're saying, you know what, son, I, I'm a sinner too. And I have to deal with this through Christ. And we're now walking through it as an example with them. It's like you've never raced in your car to a parking space ahead of somebody just so you can get that spot. Aha, I got it. That other person has to drive that extra 50 feet to get into the grocery store. Or there's a, a plate of cookies being passed around. And uh, you're watching it come around. It's almost to you. And there's one there with the big chocolate chips in it and all the walnuts. And that's mine. That one's mine. And the person takes it. Hey, you took my cookie. It's not your cookie. You didn't own that cookie. Your heart is selfish. It says, I want that biggest and best one because it's for me. That's the love of self. We all do it. We must not distance ourselves from the sins of our children as if they have a problem to which we cannot relate. We often do that. We think, you know, we don't have a problem. You're the ones with the problems and you need to fix this. Instead, we need to come down and recognize that we have sins also. Addressing the issues of the heart gives you the wonderful opportunity to show your children that they have the same struggles that you have, and this moves you away from hypocrisy. It gets them to see, you know what, yes, I need a savior too. I can't do it on my own. By addressing the issues of the heart, you can begin to help your children understand what's going inside of them. We want them to self-regulate. We want them to grow up and have the moral character and the moral knowledge, so they're eventually going to regulate themselves through God's word. They don't need us. That was one of Kathy and my goals was to raise kids so that by the time they're 10 or 12, 13 years old, they would then be able to make their own decisions based upon the word of God, based upon what is in their heart, rather than requiring us to be the ones that had to be their governor watching over them. Hope is found in, in Christ's grace, the gospel and his power, and this puts it right there. The gospel is not a message about doing new things. It's a message about being a new creature, isn't it? Change from the inside out. It's heart surgery, not a facelift. 
You know, sometimes that's all we want. We just want the face to look good when the heart is just rotten. So go to the scriptures so you can learn the abundance of the heart issues and what they are. If you're going to do this with your kids, though, I'm going to remind you again, you have to do it with yourself first. And, and this comes down to a view of your view of the Christian life, about a God of hope and mercy and love that enables you to love from the heart. And that's what we want our kids to do. We want them to be on the right side of this chart. We want them to intrinsically have a love for others that results in a behavior of sharing, a behavior of the positive, the godly, fruit of the Spirit. And that will turn heads. That will give them an opportunity to share the gospel with others. I'm going to turn the corner here a bit and look at our conscience and how it works, and how we deal with these issues. Hopefully this is going to kind of tie the last couple sessions all together into a nice, neat package. Because men and women have the law written on their hearts. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even even defending them. The conscience is a means by which God shows all men that they're wrong. We all have a conscience. When I was uh, dating my wife, I, uh, I loved to play pranks on her and, and had a lot of fun doing it. And one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to fill up her car one time with balloons. And she lived down in downtown L.A., not in the best part of town. And uh, so late at night, I went there, and I don't know how, somehow I got her car open. But I went to a gas station to fill up the balloons. So I'm in a shady neighborhood, and I'm filling up ga- balloons in a gas station. And up walks this guy, and just walking along. And I'm going, uh-uh, I'm not sure what this guy's after. And uh, so he started chatting with me, hey, I need your help. Well, I'll help you if I can. He says, well, no, I, I want to go rip off my parents. They're out of town, and I, I want to go rip them off. And I got talking to this guy, and his conscience was so seared, he thought it was right that he could just go take things of his parents, and he just needed somebody to help him. Man, I couldn't believe that a guy would actually think that way. It just was so foreign to my thoughts. But as I talked to them, it was there. He had it in his conscience. As, as bad as this guy was, as what a life he had had, eventually there was, I saw within him, that he could distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil. All men have that in their hearts to a certain level. Notice that this verse we read, that the unsaved Gentiles have it encoded in their hearts. It's there. That's why people know that it's wrong to do certain things. You've seen it in your own children. You catch them doing something, and immediately they'll start offering excuses, won't they? Oh, well, I was just... uh," And they'll they'll make up some story of what they're doing. You know that they've been doing something, even if you don't even know what it was, but they feel guilty already. A toddler told not to touch something, and they'll go and touch it, and they'll look at you, won't they? They'll say, are you going to do anything? You told me not to touch this. Are you going to do anything about me doing that? They know. Early on, it's in their heart. They're watching to see if you're going to do it because they know it's wrong. Their conscience is accusing them of something that is written on their hearts. In the Bible, we obviously have lots of examples of that. Here's some examples of what Jesus would do. He would tell them a story and then ask questions to draw the issues out of their heart. He would get them to speak, okay, what is it that's in your heart here? Matthew 21, 23, the, the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son. And uh, he goes and he, he talks about that and he says, you know, one of them obeyed in word and not in deed. The other obeyed in deed and not in word. And he drew out of them what was going on with him. And he could get the Pharisees to respond. They knew what was right and wrong. Following after that, the parable of the tenants he talks about. 
When Jesus asked the Pharisees questions, he appeals to their conscience. This is written in your heart. So they knew what was right and wrong. Then after that, he goes in, in verse 45 of Matthew 21, and he tells them that basically this is you guys. And he says, it says, their hearts were smitten. Their hearts were smitten. They knew that what they said was, you know what? Yes, we've been caught in this. And he appeals to their conscience. He quotes from the Psalms, and he shows they knew what they were talking about, and they knew where they were at in pursuing him. He just he hit them solid there. So he would look into their heart and reveal it by asking questions. People are competent to judge because the law is written on their hearts. That's our legal system, why we have jurors and stuff like that. There is conscience there. So Jesus has a pattern where he appeals to their conscience. It deals with the root problem, not just the surface issues, because he wants to deal with the hearts. Our task as parents is to get our children to see from Scripture where their heart has sin in it and to seek forgiveness, to get them to deal with the issue between themselves and God. And that's where the heart is, that heart part. That's where it's different. Uh, Some examples of this. Objectionable TV. You have a question with that in your house. You know, Dad, I want to watch this program. And, you know, you're thinking, eh, I'm not sure that's the best, best program. Well, what do you do? You take them to something like Ephesians 5, 3 through 7, and you read it together. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Well, you walk that through with your teen or your child, whatever age, use scripture. And say, well, do you think you can watch that and not have this? Are you, are you accurately applying the scripture to them? It allows them to see, oh, Scripture does speak to this. This is what I hold in my life as a parent, and I want to impart that to my kids. Deuteronomy 6, first have it in your heart. So if you're watching objectionable TV and your, cat, your kids want to watch the same thing, it's like, well, Dad, how come you're doing it? And that's going to nail you. Ask questions with your kids that help you evaluate the situation to see what it is in the heart. And then you look at the issues through the lens of Scripture. Dealing with the matter of, of the tongue. James 3 just covers this greatly. It talks about the tongue as a world of fire. It can set on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. It says uh, man can, can tame every kind of bird and beast and serpent, but the tongue he can't, can't contain. He can't control it. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And with that same tongue, you, you bless God and then you curse man. These things can't be. Well, that's a great verse. You take your kids to James 3 if you're dealing with lying. You're dealing with is words that they say to people that are unkind. Fighting and quarreling among your kids. Well, you know, how do you, scripture, does that, what does it say that? Well, James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, are there fighting and wars among you? You, you, you desire and you, for pleasures and war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You ask because you receive not. So there's this fighting that's going on. Well, scripture speaks to it because are you asking the right things from God? Is this the right thing for you to be looking at and being a part of is this type of fighting? Compromises with the world. And you get into the teen years, and your kids, if you haven't set these patterns early on, they're going to want to compromise with the world. They're going to want to be a part of whatever's going on. Well, take them to James 4 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I mean, these are just practical aspects. Scripture speaks to so many of these things. Unkind words. 
So you get a behavior unkind words? What's the, the, the heart issue? Well, there's something in there that's not right. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but what is necessary for edification. That's where you take them to Scripture. It says, you know what? These are unkind. Scripture speaks to that. I think we need to work on this. I remember as a kid, I got my mouth washed out with soap. And uh, still have that taste of soap in my mouth. It it had an effect on me. I, I knew I didn't want to use unkind words. Is it the word of God that is smiting their conscience? Or is it you just trying to change their behavior? We can make a list of all the rules, and here's all the rules in our house, and you need to keep this like this. You keep all this, and they're going to be prideful. I know. I was one of these kids. I had a bunch of rules given to me by my parents. And, man, I would keep every one of those. I look great. But inside my heart was rotten. Didn't deal with my heart. The set of rules does not do that. They can become Pharisees. So what you do is you picture your child's conscience as a giant warehouse. And this is what I'm going to refer to as the moral warehouse. A great concept that was uh, taught through some other parenting classes I took. Um, Back in 2009, uh, the company that I worked for, we built a new factory. And uh, this factory is a huge warehouse, and we put shelves and rows in it. And picture in your mind this this warehouse with all these shelves just sitting there empty. Go into Costco, and you see all those racks sitting there. Picture the place completely empty, but all these racks sitting there. And this is like your child when they're born, and there's all these places that you can put stuff in. I'm not saying that they have a blank slate. There is sin nature there. But, But there's all this opportunity for you to put on these shelves some different things that are going to help them morally make wise decisions. We take verses like Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We want to take our children and we want to put the word of God in their hearts so that they have something that will be there in their conscience that they don't sin against God. We have a responsibility as parents to fill these shelves. Take scripture and put that in there along with the moral reasons behind it. This is to put their, into their mind, and a greater chance then of it will be acted upon, the more you can put into this warehouse. So we're going to go through six aisles, or, or six different levels of respect. And this is uh, out of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, let each of you esteem one another more important than themselves. So we're going to kind of take these six, and we're going to walk through them, because there's a lot of practical applications here. They're going to help you see avenues and vehicles and thought process maybe you have that are unbiblical, that will hey, I can change that. And you're now doing it with a purpose. You're putting things on these shelves that could be drawn out later. The first one, number one, is respect for authority. Respect for authority. We have a lot of authority in our lives. And and at a young age, sometimes we we need to train these into our our kids. And and we don't even think about it because the conversations aren't there. So this is Deuteronomy 6. As you're walking, by the way, as you're riding in the car, I think it says, as you're sitting down at McDonald's, I think in the Greek it says that or something in, in that verse in Deuteronomy 6. These are the areas, these are the times, not in the middle of a conflict when your child has just done something wrong. Okay, kid, I'm going to give you the rules here, what we're going we're gonna to stand out. Here's respect for authority. No, this is everyday life. You're talking and walking through this with them. Respect for authority, stop lights. Real simple. That light's red. Little two-year-old, you teach him that little song. What is it? Uh, red means stop, yellow means wait, and green means go, go, go. We taught that our kids. And so you learn that, and you teach him the little things like that in two-year-olds. That, well, we have authority. There's a policeman. He's in charge. And so you explain the process of authority, and that keeps going, and you keep training more and more processes on what authority is. And you put verses behind it. You put concepts behind it. Don't walk on the grass. There's a little sign there. Well, why is that? Well, we want to have this grass stay nice for everybody. 
all the way down to disagreements with teachers. They're, they're in authority. So you have a child who has a problem with a teacher. How do you handle it? Well, we had that come up. We had one of our kids that had done some uh, a science, a um, History Day project, wonderful History Day project, worked really hard on it, and he put a lot of time in it, was going to state, I think he had a chance of doing that, and so he got it all done and turned it in, and the teacher said, well, I can't accept this, it was due yesterday. Due yesterday? I thought it was today, I thought we talked about this, was to, and so for some reason the date he had was off by one. Well, what would my reaction as a parent be? What would yours be? It was national. Hey, this is wrong. He didn't know. He didn't make a mistake here. Yeah, I, I asked him. He went back and appealed to his teacher to try and, you know, maybe is there some way he can still get into this? And it was no. There was no appeal. It couldn't change. It was really disheartening for that child to say, oh, man, I put all this work into it and I didn't get any result out of it. So we taught respect for authority the way that I handled that teacher. I didn't go out and, you got to let my son do this and he did this and that's unfair. No, it was James. I'm sorry, it wasn't James. It was another son. Um, thank you. I almost got you there. Um, you did this. You worked hard. You did the best you can. And it was an honest mistake. Let's learn from this. What can we learn? So we went through the process, what we learn in this process, all the way down to when he is older. Isn't it neat that you learn this lesson early, how to respect authority, so when you're older, you're not going to have to learn this? So he goes to work. He gets they're on time. He shows up. He does the best job for, a bo for his boss. And let's say he did a project, worked on it a long time, and all of a sudden the boss said, nope, you know what? We're not going to do that. I did all this work. How is he going to respect his boss in there? Well, he's already had an example of this. It's a godly response. So that's the way we teach those things, respect for authority. I put some verses there that uh, you can look up. Very helpful. Number two is respect for parents. Respect for parents. Now, this one sounds obvious. But there's only one mom and dad. There's a lot of other people in his life, but only one mom and dad. Often this problem is the parents. We have low expectations of our kids on how they should respect us. And it's the kicking. It's the yelling. It's the back talk. That's completely unacceptable. And we would teach that early to our kids. I'm sorry, your attitude is unacceptable. You can't treat your mom that way. You can't treat your dad that way. And we would isolate them, put them away on from us in another room until they were in an attitude that, that could, uh, could work. Even in young kids' temper tantrums, I think most of our kids may have tried it once, and that was about it. It didn't work. We put them aside. This is unacceptable behavior. We will not put up with this as parents. You're not respecting us and what we have put as our authority here. We have to establish these expectations. Do they demand things of you? Mom, go get me the milk or get this. You can easily become a slave just the way that they speak to you. Do they say please when they ask you to do things? Do they talk back to you? We're the main tool to bring them to God. And so we have to establish this early. And with us, obedience to us had to be immediate, it had to be complete, and it had to be without complaint. That's what we expected out of obedience of our kids because that we were the parents. We were the ones calling a shot, making the rules. If it didn't fit that confine, then we had to say, okay, we need to deal with this. There's some rebellion here. Respect for parents. Number three, respect for age. Respect for age. For children, actions precede their belief. You know, they're going to do things, and then, and then their belief will follow. And uh, often, it's so easy for, for kids not to have learned this respect for age. And one of the vehicles we used was Mr. and Mrs. Older people that were, let's say, our age and not their age were called Mr. and Mrs. You don't have to do this, but we chose it as a vehicle to show respect. Age has not made us equal. There's something about your age, sir, ma'am, whatever it is, th that they're a little bit older. We didn't 
have those words, but Mr. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so, not Jane and Sam, the other people that they're talking to as our friends. That helped establish that, you know what, there's a difference between them and me for the child. It's not like we're all on the same par and we're all buddies. We don't have the same experiences. We would have a, a UPS driver come to the door and uh, knock on the door, and one of our kids would be with us, and we say, tell him to say hi. He would turn his head. Well, he's not respecting that older person. No, that's unacceptable. We need to change that attitude. And we would work on that attitude with that child so that they would. And sometimes it took multiple times of coming back and dealing with some chastisement to say, this is unacceptable. When someone says hello to you, even at an early age, you politely look at them in the eye and you say, good morning or good afternoon or hello. That's all we ask of you to establish that early because this is going to give them an opportunity later on to be able to be speaking to other people to share the gospel with them. There's always a long-term goal here we're thinking about. Um, we taught our kids not to run at church um, on the, uh, different times, not in, in certain contexts, because we would teach them, you know what, there's old people at church, and you might just run between somebody and knock them over, and they'd fall down, and they could get hurt. And I watched this happen. I watched a child run in front of an old lady. She fell down, broke her hip, and she was in the hospital for months. I don't know if she ever recovered from it. It was all because of a foolish child that was running in a place that they shouldn't. We don't realize the consequences of our actions here. We taught our kids, as we're talking with another adult, that that person is important to us and needs to be important to them. So we taught them what we call the interrupt rule. And Tiffany was just reminding me of this, that she had learned this from us years back and, and had been reminded of it. Um, if our, we're talking with an adult, we don't want our kids to just come up and say, Mommy, 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 or Daddy, you've got to have this. Daddy, can you do this? Just plain out, outright interrupting us. So we taught, us, taught them to interrupt us very kindly. And what we said is, if you have something you need to deal with, as I'm speaking to another adult, we want you just to take your hand and put it on her hip. Just, just set it on, her, on my hip, and I'll put my other hand on it just to acknowledge that you're there, and I'll break my conversation to speak with you. What that did is it created a sense of, you know what, your conversation, Dad, with that other man is more important than I am, and I want to take my rightful role here. So I'm just going to use this little way of interrupting my father. Now, you as a parent have a responsibility to stop, to deal with that. If you just keep going on for hours talking to that person, it's not going to be respectful. You're going to frustrate, exasperate your child, which you don't want to do. So you acknowledge it, and you say, excuse me, Bob, can I speak with uh, my, my son for just a minute? Or my daughter, and you, you go and deal with that, whatever the problem is. So what you've done is created a vehicle to demonstrate respect for age because God honors age. It says in, uh, in Leviticus 19.22, and I love, this is, I should probably make this into my life verse, you shall rise before the gray-headed, yes, and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. There's a verse that our kids can, can obey. You want your kids to turn heads? This will turn heads. You know, they, wow, how'd you get your son to do that? My kids come up to me and they, they just interrupt me like crazy. How did your son so respectfully do that? Well, you know, I took this parenting class. I'm reading this book. And, and I think scripture says that, that I need to honor you, my friend, instead of them. And I'm teaching my kid this. Really? Can I come to that? And so that opens up an opportunity for you to share the gospel with your friends because your kids are respecting age. They grow up, that respect for age is just going to be just phenomenal what it will do for them in life. Respect for age. Number four is respect for peers. Respect for peers. 
This is really their view towards their, their friends and the other kids that they play with in the nursery or other places. Set and establish some boundaries and some rules and teach them. Walk through that. Run through scenarios. We used to take our kids to the mall and just sit and watch other people. Not because we wanted to point out what they're doing wrong, but just to teach the process of, well, what would you do in this situation? Is this right? Is this wrong? And you, you can use it as a teaching process. Or how about views towards those with disabilities? I mean, you can really establish a heart of love for all other mankind. And you, you talk about discrimination and things like that. Christians, we, we shouldn't have that all. We should just have a love for all people. And this is how you train it. Again, in the times of non-conflict where you're just sitting by the way. You're walking. You're sitting at McDonald's. I think that verse says. Um, we taught them, is it true, is it kind, is it necessary, when they would speak about somebody else. So, you know, you get girls, and they love to chatter and talk all kinds of stuff. And they would say something, well, is it true, is that kind, is that necessary? If it didn't fit all three of those, I'm sorry, we shouldn't be saying those things. That shouldn't be coming out of your mouth. We would teach that to them. Teaching them views of sex and purity and modesty. I mean, that is so key to do that because it's respect for their peers. So they grow up and they want to dress the right way. The girls do because they don't want to cause other men to stumble with their eyes. You may even need to set up some things ahead of time and ways they can respect. Maybe setting up a toy box for them that these toys are for sharing when your friends come over. But these are your special toys. You don't have to share those. That's how we dealt with, uh, with that. But we established this ahead of time. That helped us to say that, you know what, you have friends coming over. We want to make sure that you are caring for them and putting them first. There's a value to your peers. You're going to grow up with these kids. And uh, we want to all be on the same par if, if we're working within a church. I think it would be very helpful to have that on the same rules. So respect for peers. Number five, respect for property. Respect for property. And not so much property itself, but it's the preciousness of the owners of that property. Bunch of different ways we can look at this. Church property is a, is a real key one. You know, when our kids are at church, we taught them, you know, we don't want you running on the pews, standing on the pews and running them, or running up on the stage where you might break wires or trip on the music equipment, anything like that. There's a respect for all that property that's here from the church because it's here for worshiping God. We go to the ice cream store, and what do the kids do? First time they, first time they come to that, that panel there, that glass with the ice cream, they put their hands. You've got it. Yeah, exactly. Put their hands on it. We tell them, you know what? When you put your hands there, You've now made fingerprints. Somebody has to clean that off. That's somebody else's property. And also, think of the people who come behind you. They have to look at those ugly fingerprints. And any windows or any doors, you use the handles. We tried to teach them there's a reason for this. Because we're trying to create a place that will be better for other people because we have treated property well. Little stupid things like shopping carts. We just, for some reason, ingrained that in our minds early on. We take a shopping cart to the grocery store when we're done. We don't just set it in a parking space next to us. Heathens can do that just as easy as we can. No, we take it and run it back to the front of the store. We put it in the aisle where they belong because we care about somebody who's coming behind us. We want their life to be such that we are not being a stumbling block to them. We, we do these things because we have a love for others. John thirteen thirty five says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. Never before had there been any group established in the world that had that as their mark. Here's the key mark of a Christian. They have love one for another. And we Christians are those. We need to show that to every single person. So when you, uh, somebody cuts you off on the freeway or you're tempted to you know, do something, think of a love for others. There's the purpose that we're doing it. Your kid's in the back seat watching. They hear your attitude when you respond to that. And what are you teaching them? Are you teaching them a love for others and a lo- others' property? 
We never allowed slamming doors in our house, and I don't, can't remember any time we ever had slamming doors. That is a sign of disrespect for property, but also it's an attitude usually that's accompanying it that has to be dealt with even more seriously. Uh, responsibility of returning something in a shape better than you received it. You borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, man, you clean that thing off. You fill it back up with gas. Those are important things. Teach your kid that. So as you're mowing the lawn with your son, you've borrowed a neighbor's tool, you've gone and cleaned up. Well, son, this is what we do. We clean this because Mr. Jones, you know, I've, I've been sharing the gospel with him. And I think it's real important for him to know that if I do this, I care I'm different than other people. So you go over and above because you want to open that opportunity by our love. One other way we do this, I like to demonstrate the absurd by the absurd. And uh, we established something that uh, we've shared this with a couple of you before that, that helped us create a vehicle for respect for property and respect for others. And that was what we call No Manners Night. So we would take one night of a certain time. We only did a couple of these because they were so memorable and we couldn't do it very often. And we would take and eat outside on the patio. And we'd have something like spaghetti with meatballs and lettuce, a salad type of thing. And uh, we would say, you know what, tonight is a special night. We are going to write down all the rules that we have when we eat. As if we were eating with the queen, we would say, you know, with a finger up. And these are the rules that we should have as decorum around our house. So, you know, no talking with food in your mouth, no grabbing your neighbor's food, no burping, no, you know, we just write, these are the the rules of, of care and concern for others. And on this night, you could disobey all of them. And so we had a no manners night. We would eat outside, and there'd be food flying all over the place. The dog absolutely loved it. It was wonderful. And it was just a mess, but it was so fun because it was absurd to say, you know what, this is what chaos is like. This is a family that doesn't have rules and doesn't care about each other. And it wasn't, we had neighbors who wanted to come over, and, and other people from our parenting heard about this. And they said, can we come over when you have your no manners night? No. <laughs> but it was a way to demonstrate we have order, we have rules for a reason here, and we respect properly. Uh, respect property normally. And then we'd wash the whole thing off with a, with a hose. So try and remember that. Respect for property, we're doing it for a purpose. Sixthly is respect for nature. Nature was created by God, not by us. We don't have a right to just destroy it anytime we want. Man's called to be a steward of it. And again, this comes down to the preciousness of others. Other people are more important than ourselves. And we want to make sure that we are doing things that will not offend them and not lead them away from Christ, but towards Christ. Are we just a genetic accident um, that happened by mutation? So that's why you teach your kids creation versus evolution, because we want them to see that God created all of nature. You're going out for a walk in the woods, and uh, you see an ant pile. Your kids, they go and stomp on it, kill all those ants. No, that's, that's nature. God put those ants there for a reason, so you teach that process. Now, if those same ants were in my house... I mean, I'm going to get the vacuum. I'm killing them right away. I mean, that's, that's instant. I'm going to take care of them because that's my property. They've invaded it. But out in the woods, you, you have a preciousness for that. Or you've seen a, a kid walking down the street and he sees a bush and he grabs his hand on it and grabs a branch and just and pulls the leaves off the branch. He has this nice little bouquet of flowers there and he throws it away. That's not caring for nature. That's destroying nature. One of my kids came in the house one day just totally upset. There had been a, a bird in a bird's nest out across the, uh, the street in a neighbor's tree. And it was, you know, he'd been watching that thing for a long time. And one of the other neighbors found a neighbor kid, a boy, and he took a stick and he just started beating on it. And he beat the thing and knocked the nest down and broke it. 
It broke my son's heart because he knew that nature. He cared about nature. Those are the th- little things that we want to teach them to have that preciousness for things. Now, I'm not talking, you know, start an organization, save the squid or anything like that. It's, it's No, it's, it's let's be real here on God-created stuff. We want to care for it. God put it there for us to tend and to use. We want to make sure that we are caring for a reason, and that is because of others and because God created it. So those were respect for authority, respect for parents, respect for age. These are the aisles in this warehouse. Respect for peers, respect for property, and respect for nature. Now, picture with me all these racks that we saw earlier in Costco. And now we've been putting things on those racks. Every one of these levels are now putting things. As your child grows, you're putting more and more things on there. So as you or your child, picture your child in this case, you're driving down the street and uh, all of a sudden you see a red stoplight. Well, inside your mind, there's what I call a moral search mechanism. It's a little robot. And red light, automatically this moral search mechanism goes to work and goes up and down, up and down these aisles looking. Is there anything that I'm supposed to do based upon seeing a red light? And All of a sudden, the robot pulls out a little section here that says, red light means respect for authority. You need to stop at a red light because God created authority over you, and the authority says that red light means stop. So it brings that up to the front of the brain, and now you have to act upon it. So, bingo, there it is. There's the moral search mix. It finds it. Or maybe there's another case where it's a, uh, you're on a bus somewhere with your kids, and an old lady comes in. What? All of a sudden, old lady came in a bus. Do I need to do anything based upon this? Moral search mechanism looks all over the shelves. Nah, didn't find anything. Come back. I don't have to do anything. So here's this moral search mechanism. It's going to give you in your conscience or give your child in their conscience different reactions and actions based upon what it finds in there. And there's four activities of the conscience. We read earlier in Romans 2, verse 15, Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. There's four actions or four activities that are going on in the conscience here. The first is a warning against sin. A warning against sin. Red light. So conscience brings up, there's a red light here. There's a warning. You're going to sin if you go and go through this red light because respect for authority is what the Bible says. We want to implant that thought into our kid's mind. Or, you know, you, you see, you're driving down the street, uh, down the freeway, and all of a sudden you see a police car. Immediately, what do you do? Where's that right foot go? Right on the brake, doesn't it? Just automatically we do that. Why? Because our conscience says, ah, I'm going to get a ticket here. I've done something potentially wrong. Or maybe there's a sign that says no littering. You know, you've got a, a piece of trash and you're getting ready to roll down the window and you see a no littering sign and $500 fine. But you know what? That $500 sign, the $500 fine sign, that's for the heathen. For us, we should say, you know what? The warning is not because I'm going to have to pay $500. It's because the preciousness of others who are coming behind me, that this is going to look ugly. It's going to present for other people. Somebody has to clean it up, but also other people have to see this thing that doesn't belong here, whatever this trash is. There's a reason, and our conscience should be because it's right, it's spiritual, it's godly, it's a love for others. Not we don't want to have to pay a $500 fine because we do it. So there's the warning. It's a warning against sin is the first thing that happens. The second is a prompting to do right, a prompting to do right. James 5.19 talks about how you should help a brother who is sin. You should go to him if you see him. It says, Brethren, if any among you wander from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. That's the prompting. It might be a friend who does the prompting to you of something that's going on, but our conscience prompts us for the right thing to do. 
So an old lady comes onto the bus and you're in there, this moral search mechanism. If, if you didn't teach that in your kid, think about that. That old lady is sitting there stand, having to stand on the bus because there's no seat. Meanwhile, your kid's sitting there and just having a great old time just sitting on the, on the couch. No, we want to train in our kids respect for age. You know what? Old person comes in. I need to stand up and offer them my seat. There's a real value to that. That demonstrates that this person is more important. Age has not made us equal. So the conscience will prompt you to do it if it's been trained into the conscience. The third activity is accusing. Accusing. That's accusing when wrong has been done. Maybe that's the red light that you went through. Or maybe that's when you're doing 70 on the freeway instead of 65. Or maybe it was construction zone and you left it at 65 instead of 55 because you had the cruise control on. You now see those red lights behind you and now you're really getting accused because you did something wrong. Um, there's many different ways you can do that. You throw the trash out the window and, and that's, oh, I did that wrong. You know what? I threw that out. I shouldn't have done that. And it may not be that your conscience is cleared to you go back and pick up that trash that you threw out because you knew it was the wrong thing to do. The conscience is going to accuse you. You did that wrong. You shouldn't have done it. And that's what our God has put into us to, to be prepared for that. Lastly is excusing. Excusing. That's confirming when the right choice has been made. Hey, I've made the right choice. And it's so confirming to, to feel that, especially when you're kids, when somebody else points it out. Son, that was really nice of you to get up so I could sit down. Thank you. Wow, that's, that's what we want. Because then it's an opportunity to share the gospel. So all of these shelves, they all need to be filled. There's, there's lots of things that you can impart into your kids. So Sunday morning after church, you go home and what do you do? You take the principles that you've learned at church every single Sunday and you work those back through. And you're trying to work it into the everyday times of life. As you sit in the way, as you stand up, as you sit in the McDonald's, as you're driving in the car, all of those different times. We want to be an example to others. We want to draw others to Christ. And this is how we can do it through our kids. I've heard it said before, just like Steve said, where, where people come up to you and they say, you know what, I've been watching your kids, and I, I don't know how you do that. How, how do you get your kids to obey you like this? What are you doing that makes them so cheerful and so loving? You know, these are the times when people will share with you their hearts, because they, they want. This world is out there hopeless. They keep trying thing after thing, the total transformation system. I tried this. I tried that. And they end up with kids who might be Pharisees. They can do right on the outside, but not on the inside. Their heart is not there. We want the hearts to be changed. We want an opportunity to share the gospel, share the hope that's within us. That's what it's all about. That's what this parenting is about. It's not about us having good kids that will keep our sanity so we can just get through it. And when we're done, we can say, oh, wow, finally got over parenting. And my kids turned out okay. No, that's, that's not our goals. Our goal is to watch them mature, accept, and, and come up, accept what we've done, and then have their own relationship with Christ where they recognize their own sin and they say, yes, this is what I want to embrace. Christ is my Savior. Christ is my hope. And they're going to raise the next generation and the next and the next. There's our goals. That's what we're shooting for. And uh, hopefully you'll take something away from these uh, two sessions this morning and it'll just reinvigorate your mind to think on these things, dwell on them. Um, if you have more questions, I certainly love to answer them. We've got another session on Sunday. Hopefully we can see you guys there. And uh, Steve, do you want to close us? Thank you. About... Um when you hear the word, don't be hearers only, but what? 
doers. Um, just in the time you can hear from, I think you can hear both Grant and I, we're, we're passionate about this. And this wasn't the result of us going, okay, hmm, what should we talk about? This is trying to cram decades of joy in parenting into a few hours. Um, the best thing you could do as a married couple is before the day is out, and might I suggest before you eat lunch, that you calendar a time that you're going to sit back down and work through these things and pick the four or five or six things that you need to implement now. Because if you just sort of let it sit there and you'll, it's like rolling a bowling ball up a hill. It looks like it's making progress, but then it's going to just slide back down. Um, make a plan. Figure out and be honest. Where are our weaknesses right now? You have more than enough information. And we're going to keep this going. Sunday, I'm going to talk specifically about dads and moms. Um, and, and kind of dividing out the generalities we've had this weekend into uh, specific roles uh, that, uh, that that dads need to take on a little bit more and that moms need to take on a little bit more. And then, as I mentioned, we'll just sort of continue this and, and work on our whole family uh, for the next few weeks. And we'll look at wives. We'll look at husbands. I don't know how long we'll take to do that um, and just let the Lord do that. But, again, uh, your family is your first area of obedience to the Lord. In fact, it's so important that uh, for me as a pastor, for anybody in leadership in the church, your family is what qualifies you for ministry. And it's the first thing that will disqualify you for, from ministry if you don't have your family together. And uh, so it's important. It's key. It's worthy. Um, it is, the, it is a, a huge worthy pursuit. And might I put it this way? That every family is a miniature version of the church, and it is to be run that way. It, it includes teaching God's word. It includes a, a, uh, a an elder who is a dad. It includes teaching. It includes discipline. It includes fellowship together. It, your family is a miniature version of the church. It is not the church, but it is a miniature version. And so... You treat it that way, and the parallels are amazing. So um, I hope that you have found something useful. If you haven't found anything useful, that's your fault, not ours, because we did our part. So uh, take it and make an appointment with your spouse. To We're going to work through these things and highlight this. And um, uh, ladies, you can point out what your husband's doing wrong, and men, you can point out what you're doing wrong. Uh, just keep it on that. But do that today. Make some make some efforts. Uh, otherwise, otherwise uh, you'll you'll find yourself frustrated. The bowling ball rolling right back down, and take your home uh, for the Lord. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. And uh, thank the Lord for this time. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. That is ultimately uh, where we're headed. Lord, we want to have our children sit safely in the shadow of the cross, covered with the blood of Christ and enamored by our Savior so that ultimately, Lord, these little ones will grow up to not uh, to no longer be our sons and daughters, but that they might grow to be our brothers and sisters. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of your afternoon.